You are listening to the Living Way Church podcast. For more information about Living Way Church, go to livingwaychurch.cc. Well, today we continue our series called Kings, and today's message is called Let's Dance. Who's ready? Who is like totally kind of weirded out by dancing? Anybody other than myself? Any other men? Thank you. Yeah, Weldon and I, we were at, the, at Byron's wedding reception, and we were like, oh. He, uh, he danced with Byron. I, that's pretty amazing. Uh, you know, today's uh, series, uh, today's message in this series uh, is, is one of my favorites. It's got some of my favorite stories in David. Now, I want to let you know that this is an epic portion of the Bible that we've been going over this summer. And we still have a few weeks left. We'll be wrapping it up. Uh, in September, like in the first couple of weeks of September. But, but this is a big, large portion of the Bible in the Old Testament. In fact, it covers nine books. Take a look at this graph. As you can see how the story of, of Saul covers predominantly 1 Samuel, David covers 2 Samuel and 1 Chronicles. A large portion covers some of Solomon's life. And then you have, uh, and then you have the rest of the kings and the divided kingdom. So uh, what we are talking about, this epic story, actually takes up nine different books of the Bible. There are ten books on the graph there because uh, it includes the divided kingdom, but only nine of them deal with the three kings that we've been talking about. And this is a big story. It's the story of the very first monarchy of Israel. King Saul has now died. David is crowned king of Judah. And after seven years of civil war, he is crowned the king of all Israel. And he moves the capital to a a city called Jerusalem. And it's now called the city of David. And through a series of battles, David conquers the neighboring uh, neighboring enemies, the Philistines, the Amorites, the Amalekites, the Cellulites, all those guys. David takes them all out. By the way, there's no cellulite, in case you're wondering. And now he has united the kingdom and basically fulfilled the Abrahamic covenant of the property of the land promise again. So David now sets up a new kingdom, a brand new kingdom. Since Saul had basically demolished the words of God and disobeyed God for 38 years, David is now a united king, and he sets forth two decrees as his very first priorities. And today we're going to look at two decrees and three people. And the first decree is this. He says, I will keep the Lord at the center of our life. That's the first thing that he sets in place. He wants God placed back in the center of the national consciousness. David desires God's presence, God's blessings, God's guidance. He realizes that without God guiding them and leading them, they're lost. They realize how much he needs God. He needs the Lord. He knew neither he nor Israel would amount to anything without the presence of God. They needed the Lord. They needed God. So therefore, David sets up a plan to bring the Ark of Covenant back to Jerusalem and to restore to a place of prominence. And it's a great plan. Where's the Ark? Where's the Ark of Covenant, which we're going to talk about in a minute. You're going to see a a, a sort of a picture of it. And it's time to bring it back. But some days 
No matter how hard you plan, some things just go wrong. And this is the case for David. If you've ever planned for a wedding or if you've ever planned for a party or ever planned for an event or vacation, sometimes the best of plans just go wrong. And I'm sure some of you have a story or two about that. Well, this is David's dilemma right now. In 1 Chronicles 13, 2, it says this, David said to all the assembly of Israel, if it seems good to you, and if it is from the Lord our God, let us send everywhere to our kinsmen who remain in all the land of Israel, also to the priests and Levites who were with them in their cities with their pasture lands, that they will meet us right here. Let us bring back the ark of God to us, for we do not seek it, for we did not seek it in the days of Saul. Then all the assemblies said, that they would do so for the thing was right in the eyes of the people. David assembled all Israel together to bring the ark of God back from Kareth Jerim, which is also known as Bala. Now, what is the ark? Now, this is the ark. This is what the ark might have looked like. For some of you, the closest thing you think of the ark is Indiana Jones. And, uh, you know, you've got that Indiana Jones The very first movie had the Ark of Covenant and the Nazi Germany was trying to get their hands on the Ark, right? And if you remember the ending of the movie, it was great. Best part of the whole movie. They lift the Ark out. Oh, that's the picture right there. They're lifting it out and they go to open it up and it melts everybody. You know, it's one of the great scenes of Indiana Jones. I loved it. And it melts them. Well, the ark is actually something that was real in Israel. And the ark from the movie was actually a pretty good recreation of what it might look like. Now, where has this ark been this whole time? Well, the ark has been hidden away in a town since, uh, well, for the last 50 years with Israel. Just before Saul came along, it was set up in a town and just left there. And then when Saul lost his mind and decided to kill all the priests, the ark went into hiding. So for the last 40 years, the ark has been camping out in storage. And David says, it's time to get the ark. Now the ark has inside of it several things. The ark contains inside of it, uh, it contains manna, which fell on the ground that, that uh, somehow miraculously still is uh, keeping its, its, uh, its life in the ark. And the Torah, the very first Torah written by Moses is there. Aaron's rod that bloomed is supposed to be in the ark. And also the Ten Commandments that God himself wrote on the tablets of stone were in the ark. It's been kept in, in a private home in Bala. It represents God's presence. And wherever it was, it represented that God was with him. So David said, it's time to put God at the center of our life. Let's go get that thing. So they went to go get it. In uh, chapter 6, verse 1, uh, 2 Samuel says, David again brought together all of the able men of Israel, 30,000. He and his men went to Bala, to Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim on the ark. Now they believe that on that ark, in between those two cherubim wings, rests the very presence of God on the earth. It's what the Bible says. So bringing it back was not easy. It was six miles of rocky terrain and rocky hills 
So they decided to place it upon two oxes uh, on a cart pulled by two oxes. And now they were celebrating the whole way. Here's a picture of, uh, well, let's read this first. No, go back. We'll go back to that in a second. This is what happened. David and all Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord with uh, castanets, with harps, with lyres, with timbrels, sistrums, and cymbals. Man, they were jamming. Man, like, David was like, this is my jam. And they were dancing. They were singing. They had electric guitars. They had keyboards. They had no power, so it probably wasn't electric. They had some serious music. They had drums. They had instruments. They had... Um, And then all of a sudden, good times gone bad. An ox stumbles and and a man named Yuza reaches out to steady it and he's struck dead on the spot. Now, notice this picture here. You've got, they they were pulling it by some oxen, pulling a cart. It was placed on the cart. And as, as it was going through that rocky terrain, it starts to to stumble a little bit and it starts to tumble a little bit and user reaches out to steady it and bam, he drops dead on the spot. Good times gone bad. If that was, you never watched that TV show, good times gone bad. It's like some like <laughs> roller coaster, oh! you know, it's like final destination. But in real life, these shows are like addicting and horrifying. At the, oh, look at the bear. Ah! You know, they pulling your arm in. It's like, Good times gone bad, you know. This was one of those good times gone bad moments. This was one of those planning that just fell apart. This was like, we're partying, ah, someone's dead. Ah, oh, silence. God reigns on their parade. Joy turns to confusion. The Bible says that David gets angry at God. God, why? This was for you. He then gets scared, so he leaves it at a local man's house for three months. He says, forget it. We're not touching that thing. So he takes the ark and he leaves it at a man's house for the next three months while he thinks about it. What David does next is he gets back in the word of God. He gets in God's word. And David reads the scriptures and he discovers what the problem was. In Exodus 25, we're given clear instructions on how to make the ark and how the ark is to be carried. Now, we got a, a pit crew here, and we have some dollies out there. And they have some things that they put on the dolly on these roll carts, and they wheel them in and out. And it seems like some things, you know, it's just easier. It'd be easier until it falls off the cart, until it breaks. And you're like, you know, some things are just best carried. Well, you know, the Bible is saying the ark is one of those things that just must be carried. Men are to carry the ark. It is not to be put on a row cart. It is meant to solely to be borne on the weight of the shoulders of a man. This is because there's a very good reason. The ark represents the very presence of God with them. God is holy. We are sinful. You don't just thoughtlessly reach out and try to stable God. You can't fix God or push God or get comfortable with God. You see, user represents this guy. He represents the guy who is overconfident, irreverent, and kind of flippant. He lacked respect and was too casual with the way that he 
approached God. He was too comfortable with God. And I think many of us, we do the same thing. We're kind of like the user. God's my homeboy, you know. And we're like, God, man, upstairs. And we like treat God like he's some sort of a, you know, rabbit's tail, you know, or that he's some sort of talisman, some sort of, uh, you know, a dream catcher, that God is some sort of magical thing that you can just use and, and abuse and call upon and do whatever you want with. Sometimes we treat God just like you, a kind of flippant, kind of irreverent, kind of too casual. You know, God says we are to come boldly before the throne, but with a sense of awe and fear and wonder and intense reverence. And some of you have lost the reverence of the Lord in your life. And you wonder why everything around you is dropping dead. And I'm not talking about people, I'm talking about your situations, your experiences, your hopes. Seems like your marriage is dying. Seems like your, your finances are dying. It seems like your relationships are dying all around you. Maybe it's because you've lost your reverence for the Lord. Maybe it's because you're so comfortable with God that you don't respect Him. In the, you don't have a, have a healthy fear of the Lord. See, David realized that that was the problem that they had. He had neglected the awe and the power of God. He had neglected the clear instructions of the Lord. He had neglected the lessons of the past. Philippians 2.12, we're told to continue to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We are to take God and our walk seriously, not to take it lightly. And some of you, it's time to approach God with more reverence and awe. So following the instructions of God, he uses the poles and they're able to keep it stable without touching it. And this time David does it right. He goes back to the house. First Chronicles 51, now David built houses for himself in the city of David and he prepared a place for the ark of God and he pitched a tent for it. Then David said, no one is to carry the ark but the Levites this time. But the Lord chose them to carry the ark of God and to minister to him forever. David gathered together the sons of Aaron and the Levites, which were the the priestly family, because you did not carry it at first. The Lord our God made an outburst on us, for we did not seek him according to the ordinance, according to God's word. So the priests and the Levites consecrated themselves to bring up the ark of the Lord of God of Israel. The sons of the Levites carried the ark of God on their shoulders with the poles, as Moses had commanded according to the word of the Lord. 2 Samuel 6.12 says, So David went to bring up the ark from the house of Obadiah, Uh, to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fatted calf. I want you to realize this. I want you to realize that the ark was always preceded by blood. The ark represents the presence of God in our life, just as it did with them. Now, the ark is now something that is not necessary anymore because the Bible says that through relationship with Christ, you now become the ark of God. You become the place where the glory and the presence and the Shekinah rests and abides. You are now the temple. You are now the tabernacle. The Bible says in Christ, you are the place where the presence of God dwells. But just like then, the presence can't move forward unless it moves through blood. Guys, listen, the entire New Testament is the gospel invitation that through the blood of Jesus, we can know the presence of God. Some of you, you wonder where God is. You struggle with knowing God, walking with God. I want to challenge you to go through the blood. 
Go through the cross because blood will always precede the presence. So as they began to sacrifice to the Lord and the, the ark began to move through, this is what happens. There's always a Debbie Downer to every party. And this one was David's wife. Second Samuel 6.14, it says, Wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might. Now, some of you immediately think of the story when you're a kid of David running around without any pants on, with just his, you know, whitey tighties on, with his undies. You know, even the, the Bible movie that came out this last year, this miniseries, it shows David taking off his clothes and dancing around uh, with just his uh, loincloth, and that's not exactly what happened. Fast First Corinthians actually tells a little bit more. It says this, uh, should say first, not second Corinthians. It said, now David was clothed in a robe of fine linen as were all the Levites who were carrying the ark and as were the musicians in Keniah who was in charge of the singing of the choirs. David also wore a linen ephod. So David was dressed in a robe of fine linen and an ephod. Samuel only mentions the ephod. Now, let me explain what an ephod is because it is not the whitey tidies that we thought growing up. Basically, David removed his royal attire and underneath his robe of royalty, he had an undergarment called an ephod. And the ephod is something that stretches from the neck to the ankles. It is a garment meant to be worn by the priesthood, and over that was a jeweled ephod. It was a simple linen, and by itself, it was the clothing of a servant. And this is what's important here, because David removed his royal garments to become a servant, to become like a slave, to become like a simple person. We've actually found footage of David uh, dancing, and... um, when I came across this, I thought, you know what, this is, we've got to show you that this is probably what it looked like when David danced before the Lord. Yeah. 
So it's probably a little bit more like that than what you might imagine. This is what happened in 2 Samuel 6.16. It says, As the Lord was entering the city of David, Michal, daughter of Saul, which is David's wife, um, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. Now, not everybody was happy. Not everybody was celebrating that the presence of God was taking a prominent place in the city again. David's wife was a spectator, not a participant. Spectators like to sit in judgment of others. Often in times of worship, they're the ones that sit there in the back with their arms crossed, snarling at those that are finally reaching out or worshiping God. We have spectators in every church. They don't worship, but they like to judge. So let's see what happens. So after church, after this worship experience, David's heading home, man. He's like feeling awesome. He had a breakthrough. He's excited. God is with him. So he wants to go home and he wants to bless his family. She's apparently offended that he's dressed like some sort of servant man rather than like a king. So here's David. Verse 20 says, when David returned home to bless his household, man, great day. He's ready to high five his kids. He's ready to bless his family. He's ready to celebrate, man. It's a new day. It's a new dawn. He says, man, it's time to to worship God. But Michal, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him. I can just see she comes out of the house. He's like, all right, guys, see you later, man. We'll do this again next week. Woo. You know, so he's walking up. She comes out of the house to meet him. She comes out to meet him, says, how the king of Israel has disgusted, has distinguished himself today, going around half naked. Now, I want you to hear me out for a minute. That's where people think that he was running around in his skivvies because she says half naked. Now she's angry. And when people are angry, what do they do? They exaggerate because we already know based on the Bible that David had clothes on, but he had the clothes of a servant. He had a linen ephod. And she says, going around half naked, acting like a fool in full view of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would, just like some simple, regular Joe. She's like, what will others think? Man, you're not acting like how a king should act. She's embarrassed of him. First, Uzzah reigns on the parade. Now his wife reigns on the parade. We're talking about three ways to approach the throne of God, the king. And Mikhail, she represents the one who is self-righteous and arrogant, obsessed with position and popularity and with what others think. She's more worried about what others think than what God thinks. And she subconsciously thinks she's actually better than everybody else. She's preoccupied with herself and she's the only one who's not worshiping. Now we have some Mikhail's in here too, in this room. Not only do we have the flippant, kind of irreverent, kind of too casual, too comfortable with God uses, but we have the Michaels who are judgmental, arrogant, prideful, sit there and mock and have disdain for those who think it's below them to ever worship God, to ever show some emotion with the Lord. It's below you to ever express feelings to God. But David's response was good. He says in verse 21, it says, David said to Michal, he says, 
It was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father. Ooh, burn. God chose me, not your dad. Burn. And anyone from his house, double burn. He's like, you're acting like your dad and he didn't pick you. Uh, God didn't pick you. It says, when he appointed me ruler over the Lord, over the Lord's people, Israel, I will celebrate the Lord. I will become even more indignified than this. And I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. And Mikhail's daughter of Saul had no children to the day of her death. She, I don't know if maybe he never had relations with her again and never gave her children. Or if she was somehow barren from that day forward. We don't know. But we know she didn't have any kids. So let's kind of break down David's response a little bit. So if you're here in this room and you like to sit in judgment of people that worship God, that express themselves in worship, or you think you're too cool for school to, uh, to, to, to show emotion before the Lord, then this is David's response to you. First of all, he says to his wife, he says, you're not my audience. This was for the Lord. It was for the audience of one, the Lord, not you or for others. I'm not celebrating because I'm worried about what you think. I'm celebrating because I only have one who matters and he is the Lord. It was for the Lord. Galatians 1.10 says, uh, the apostle Paul says, am I seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were striving to please men, I would not be a bond servant or a slave of Christ. He says, you know what? You only have a choice. You either serve men or you serve God. You will either be a people pleaser or you will be a God pleaser. And David says, I'm not trying to please you. I'm trying to please God. Worship for many is for the audience. Worship for many is, is, is an attempt to impress, a performance to display skill and uh, spirituality. Uh, much of what is worshiped today is actually a concert and less worship, but more of a man-pleasing event. True worship is not a performance. And you know what? Uh, I've been a worship leader for years, so I know the challenge it is to lead worship and, and to, to rein in the poor, uh, performance and the audience mentality. It is a lot of work for our team and for our worship leader to zone out the crowd and to focus on the audience of one. It is a struggle. It is a battle. And it is also the same for those in the room who you have an audience of of about a dozen people around you, but it's not for them. It's for the Lord. The second thing he says is I have a lot to celebrate. He says he appointed me king and I'm going to celebrate him for that. The Lord chose me. He brought me out of darkness and put me in a place of life and light. He took me off the sheep fields of Bethlehem and he set me on the throne of Israel. I have a lot to celebrate. And you can't rein that in. I love this. He knew that God brought him through a lot. I found that those who have been forgiven much who or who understand what God has done for them celebrate much. I found that if you understand the grace and the power of Jesus to forgive, you might just get emotional too. Some of you, you don't understand what it feels like to be dragged out of the depths of depravity, to be given a sweet family and a life and a home. 
Some of you know what it's like to be crying out to God in desperation and to have him answer you. And when it comes time to celebrate, you can't help but be thankful like David. He says, I've got a lot to celebrate. I found some of you have a lot to celebrate, and that's why you can't hold it in. That's why you get emotional. That's why you get excited. I think, however, we're often more like Mikhail than David when it comes to celebrating God and his works in our life. We ignore or forget how God has been so good and great and faithful to us. But David says, I won't forget. I have a lot to celebrate. The next thing he says, he says, this is just the start, baby. He says, I will become even more undignified than this. He says, you ain't seen nothing. You think that was celebration? You think that was a one-time experience for me? This is a lifelong decision to be a worshiper. See, some of you, you might have a breakthrough one Sunday or at a conference or at a camp or at an event. And you might think, man, this is a one-time experience. Woo! And you come back from wherever you're at or that weekend, you come back the next weekend and you're beat, you're tired, or you're exhausted. You forget the goodness and what he's done for you. You forget you have reason to celebrate. You're worried about what others think. David says, you know what? I'm going to become even more undignified than this. I'm going to get a little crazier than this. You ain't seen nothing. You want to see crazy? (laughs) The next thing he says is I want and I seek to be broken and humbled. He says, I will be humiliated in my own eyes. He says, those low in heart will understand David saw himself as no different than others. This is a great part of the heart of David. He did not act superior to others. Like David, Jesus laid aside his royal garments as king and humbled himself and became a servant. David mirrors the life of Christ in many ways. In this example, he does. He says, like the Messiah, I will be humbled. In fact, I want to challenge you. Can you quote that to yourself? Not right now, but can you prayerfully say, I will be humiliated in my own eyes? What a prayer. God, make me look small in front of others. That's what it is. He sought to be broken. I want to point out two extremes in worship with Yuza and and Mikhail real quick. Yuza was caught up in the excitement of bringing the ark back and he forgot to pay close attention to God's word. In the excitement of the moment, we can't forget that God is holy and to be respected. Enthusiasm is never an excuse for disobedience to the word of God. We can never let our enthusiasm override God's word on order. That's what Yuza's problem was. Mikhail, however, she avoided excitement and enthusiasm altogether. It was beneath her. She avoided any outward display And she sat in judgment in others. In our efforts sometimes to remain in control, we often sit of others and miss out on the presence of God in our life. These two extremes of worship are some of you here. Some of you, you get so excited, maybe you for neglect and forget God's word. And some of you, in an effort to keep control of yourself, you miss the entire presence of the Lord in your life. Well, there's a third story here. 
It's one of my favorites. Um, But before we do, I want you to hear this. In his efforts to keep God at the center, after David builds his palace, his own palace, he is determined to build a temple to the Lord. And he says, God, I'm going to build you a temple you've never seen, that nobody has ever seen, that the world has never seen. He says it will be big. It will be beautiful. It will be a wonder of the world. And God says, I don't want it. God says, no. God says, I didn't ask for one. A tent is fine for now. Instead of building me a house, he said, I will build your house and your name. What I have for you is bigger than a temple, he told him. Through you will come the Savior of the world. This is what he says in 2 Samuel seven eleven. The prophet Nathan tells David, he said, The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him. As I, look, as I took it away from Saul, when I removed, uh, when I removed, uh, when I removed from before, who I removed from before you. There's a little tongue twister. It says, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. This was a promise to David that his son Solomon will build the temple. But even greater than that, this was a promise for the Messiah, the Savior. I want you to hear me out. Know this, that no matter how great your goals and your plans, God's plans are greater. God's plans are bigger. What David didn't realize is he wanted to build a house for the Lord. He couldn't imagine that the house that God was going to build through him. Some of you, it's time to lay down your big plans for something bigger with the Lord. So the decree one is I will keep the Lord at the center of my life. And decree two is I will keep my promise or my word to those around me. I will keep my word to those around me. It's been eight years since the death of Saul and Jonathan, his very best friend, And to Jonathan, he promised to show kindness to his house. And to Saul, he promised that he would never harm any of his descendants. And it seems that they're all gone. They're all dead. There's no one left. And it would be easy for him to forget this commitment. But he remembers. And not only does he remember, but he goes above and beyond. This is the last story I want to end with. In 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1, David asked, Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul? whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake. Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They summoned him to appear before David. And the king said to him, are you Ziba? I love that name. At your service, he replied. Well, the king asked, is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Now I want you to hear me out. Saul's household was dead and gone, but his property, his servants, his personal financial kingdom, Saul's kingdom was alive in his finances and maintained by a house servant named Ziba. Ziba was running the camp of Saul, basically. This property, this farm, this income, 
And he says, is there no one left alive? And Ziba says, well, there is still a son of Jonathan, but he's lame in both feet. Now, I can imagine David going, wait a minute. There's a son of Jonathan, my best friend? Think about it for a minute. Your very best friend whose life was horribly removed from yours through a death. And you love this guy. You love this person. And all of a sudden you hear he has a son. Now, 2 Samuel 4, 4 tells us a little bit more about his son. It says, Jonathan, son of Saul, had a son who was lame in both feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came over Jezreel, that they were dead. And his nurse picked him up and fled. But as she hurried to leave, she fell. Uh, He fell and became disabled. His name was Mephibosheth. Now, as they were running for their life, somehow he fell. We don't know how he fell, but his legs were crushed. There was no way to set them, and he basically became unable to walk from five on. Surely, this is not the one who the king will want to honor. See, the third person that we're talking about today is Mephibosheth. He represents the one who is broken and humbled. So in 2 Samuel 9, 5, so King David had him brought from Lodabar, as far away from David as he could get, the last descendant of Saul. He's on the very edge of Israel, fearing for his life, disgraced, destitute, lame. Imagine the knock on the door. Are you a descendant of Saul? The fear, the anxiety, surely I'm dead because everybody wants to kill the descendants of Saul. And he is brought to him. He is brought. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. And David said, Mephibosheth. You see an exclamation point. He's like, Mephibosheth. At your service, he replied, his head down, thinking perhaps that he would die. Years of living lower than a slave, never knowing value, never feeling love, feeling useless, broken, afraid. David says this. He says, don't be afraid. David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness For the sake of your father, Jonathan, I will restore to you. I'm going to give it back all that has been taken from you. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul. I love this. And you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down. Surprised by this amazing grace. He lays down on the ground. All these years hiding, all these years in fear that the king would turn him away. He says, who am I? What is your servant that you should notice a dog, a dead dog like me? He's not just a dog. He's a dead dog. He's worthless. Why would you even want to do anything for me? See, he expected wrath that he received grace. I wonder if when David saw Mephibosheth, he could see 
the smile of his best friend Jonathan in his face and the curls of his mouth or in the eyebrows of his look. I wonder if he could see his friend in the eyes of that man. So David then summoned Ziba, who'd been living on and claiming that land as his own, Saul's land as his own. Everything Saul owned was now to be Mephibosheth's. He says, for you and your sons are now to own this, and Ziba, you are now going to be his servant for the rest of your life. Then Ziba said to the king, your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons, and Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah, and all the members of Ziba's household were servants of Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table and he was lame in both feet. Now, I think this is one of the most amazing, beautiful stories to end on today because I see, I can see this Mephibosheth being carried to the table every day. They didn't have wheelchairs. So, He would be carried to the king's table every day, unable to take himself to the table. I can see it. Carried and sat at the table, but at the table, he doesn't see his brokenness. At the table, he doesn't see that he's different, that he's he's lost. He doesn't see that he is lame. He just sees the king treated as a son of the king for the rest of his life. Now, David here mirrors a perfect picture of the perfect king, Jesus, who has come. See, listen, like Mephibosheth, some of you are helpless. We're all helpless because of a fall. That fall is called the original sin of Adam and Eve. Because of Adam's fall, it left us all lame and broken unable to walk to the Lord. All of us are separated from God. And like Meth, perhaps you feel the world has left you lame. Perhaps you're ashamed. Perhaps you're broken. Perhaps you feel alone and abandoned. Perhaps like Mephibosheth, you feel like you have been forgotten. But everything changes when the king comes calling. And just like David, Jesus seeks you out and he calls you by name. And he shows you favor. He shows you grace. And he gives you mercy to those that are broken and humble. And Jesus will receive you as his own child and seat you at his table. Humbly come to the table. You will receive a new place, a new position, and a new parent and a new future. We cannot walk to the king. Our efforts can't do it. God himself has to carry us to the table through the Holy Spirit, seating us where we don't belong. You cannot get yourself to the king. It is only through the cross of Jesus Christ by which we are carried to the table. And at the table, you will not see your brokenness. You will be seen as a son and a daughter of the king. 
So who are you today? How will you approach God? Will you approach God like Yuza, irreverent, careless, negligent of the holiness of God? Almost a sense of disrespect and like God's not a big deal. This worship thing's not a big deal. This whole cross thing's not a big deal. Like Yuza, you'll find yourself dead before you know it. Or maybe you're like Mikhail, self-righteous, pride, arrogance. You think highly of yourself that maybe perhaps you are better than anyone here and that somehow you don't need the Lord. Or maybe you should come like Mephibosheth, broken, humbled, thankful, lowly in spirit. See, this is the intimate dance of God. See, God says, come on, let's dance Let's dance. If we come humbly and broken, we will be a son and a daughter. See, the decrees of David are for you today. See, the decree of I will keep my Lord at the center of my life and I will keep my word to those around me. These are the decrees of David. Will they be the decrees of your life? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that, Lord, right now you have called us to a place of intimacy with the Lord. God, I thank you that, Lord, that that if we come to you broken and lowly in spirit like Mephibosheth, Lord, when the king comes calling, it changes everything. Some of you today, the king is calling your name. Jesus is calling your name. He's calling you by name. You can hear him in your spirit. You can hear it in your heart. You can hear it in your head. You can hear the the calling of the Lord. He's saying, come, come to me. Come who are lowly and broken in spirit. Come who are weary and I will give you rest. You will be my son. You will be my daughter at my table. But come broken in spirit. Come lowly in heart. Come humbled and I will receive you. And I will restore to you that which the enemy has taken. God, I thank you, Father, that right now there are some that are coming to you. I want you to right where you are just to say, Jesus, here I am. I'm coming home. I'm coming, King Jesus. And I'm approaching you with humility and with brokenness. Go ahead and talk to him with your own words. In your own heart, talk to him. Father, here I am. Forgive me of my sin. I'm broken and separated from you. I cannot walk. My spirit is broken. My sin has made me disabled. But Father, at the table, I'm a son, I'm a daughter. Receive me. Will you pray that prayer? Just God, receive me. Receive me, Jesus. In Jesus' name, Lord, I come. We're going to worship the Lord here. Thank you for listening to the Living Way Church podcast. If you enjoyed this message, we hope you come visit us in Garland, Texas. For directions and more information about the church, go to www.livingwaychurch.cc.